American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. The end of the Mitch McConnell era and the Supreme Court joins the MAGA conspiracy. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are the How the World Works podcast from CEI and David Bonds' new book, Full Time. More about both of them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear, please forget I said anything. So MBD, Mitch McConnell has done the right thing and our editorialized months ago when he had these freeze-up episodes that he was just too old and too infirm to continue in this job, he has made the same judgment. You'd hear reports that just he wasn't as effective as he used to be at, at meetings because he couldn't really hear what was being said and, and would stand up and say things at the end that repeated things that others had said or weren't entirely relevant to the conversation that had just happened that, it, that he couldn't uh, follow. He's noticeably you know, more, more rickety, and he's going out on his own terms. It would have been, um, you know, one way or the other, he was going to get cashiered if Trump uh, if Trump wins again, which uh, is is quite possible, but what do you make of Mitch McConnell and his legacy? I mean, Mitch McConnell is one of the will go down as one of the major figures in Senate history. Uh, he was a man totally of the institution and for the institution of the Senate. Um, it made him a very effective leader because he mastered its rules and it's, um, you know, arcana. Uh, and he did so very effectively for his side, um, in, uh, particularly in the Obama years, uh, blocking judicial appointments or letting them through or finding, um, people that could be nominated to all sorts of obscure positions in the federal government that had, you know, strange requirements. Um, he, um, he was a master at that and he will also, his legacy is also going to be tied inextricably to the Federalist Society and the, the judicial revolution under, uh, that we're seeing now, the fruits of now, right? With a six, basically a six, three Republican majority on the court, um, on the Supreme court, which is now delivering year after year. Um, serious, serious victories for the right uh, every every summer. Um, we don't know how long that will last. We don't know how we don't we don't have a sense of the 
true depth um, on the federal bench. You know, we, we're seeing good rulings from circuits that that used to be much more terrible. Um, but you know, there's always you know, like I'm always open to there. There are suitors hiding out there in the even in the Federalist Society, and maybe some of them got through. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he'll go down as one of the most important elected conservatives uh, of his era, um, possibly the most important elected conservative of his era. And um, that that's not to say I don't have my problems with him or think that um, he's had maybe a bad year or two um, in the finish. I don't begrudge him his feelings about Trump. Obviously, it's mutual between them. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm way happy for him, you know, by announcing this this way, he kind of takes some of the pressure off of himself this year. He doesn't have to say as much about Donald Trump. Um, you know, Ted Cruz had to go through the humiliation of Trump <laughs> insulting his father and his wife, um, and then endorsing him and pretending he's the greatest thing ever. Um, McConnell's going out with, with some dignity, um, and as his own man. So he, his, his legacies, it's, it's, we won't know the full measure of it for another decade or two. So Maddie, people have been posting old videos of Mitch McConnell when he just got his start or pictures of him meeting with Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office. And I got to say, there's some, some guys you can look at, you know, Mitt Romney, like, that guy's going to be a successful politician, right? He looks like a movie star, not to say that he's not a substantive guy. He, he is, but you wouldn't have listened to, to Mitch McConnell or looked at him and say, that guy. You know, he's going to be a generational uh, talent and have an enormous impact. And it was a product of his ambition, his will, his hard work, and then also just crucially being formed by the institution uh, of the Senate and becoming really good at the Senate, which is important if you're going to be a senator or especially uh, a Senate leader. And he, he was just a, a, you know, there was, there was the derisive comments about uh, Trump supposedly playing three-dimensional chess, you know, when he, when he was president. But but McConnell very often was. And as we said in our, our editorial about his legacy, oftentimes when he was at his height, you know, MBD's right, you know, hasn't necessarily been the, the greatest year or so, especially this, uh, uh, the, the, the border deal was was a fiasco that would, wouldn't have happened, I think, if when he was at, at the top of his game. But it, oftentimes it wasn't fair, you know, the contest between Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell or between Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell. And that was partly a product of, of him being such an institutionalist. Yeah, I mean, he has a legacy, an undeniable legacy of being highly effective and of exerting massive influence. Uh, he was an incredible fundraiser. He understood that it's better to have a big tent GOP majority than a minority of Republicans singing from the same song sheet. And I think it's actually ironic in a way that what's been his downfall, other than obviously just natural decline with age, he is 82, but has been uh, Trump turning on him. And, you know, McConnell arguably is a major reason Trump won in 2016, because keeping open his seat became a, a major reason for Republicans who had concerns about Trump's character to hold their nose and vote for him anyway. And of course, they were vindicated in that decision because um, McConnell's effect on the Supreme Court, holding it open for Gorsuch, um, and then holding his nerve for Kavanaugh in 2018 under incredible 
pressure. Um, Barrett in 2020 managed to get that through quite quickly. This has resulted in real changes, real victories for Conservatives. Dobbs, affirmative action, various First and Second Amendment victories as well. So really all of that is thanks to McConnell. And I think it was very dignified the way he he sort of he quoted from scripture and, and said, you know, everything has a season. And uh, one of, he said, one of life's most underappreciated talents is know, knowing when it's time to leave. Yep. And I think that is exactly right. And of course, he's given his colleagues time to, uh, to, to get behind a, a successor, figure out who that's going to be. Um, and I think on a previous podcast, Rich, we we're talking about who would you rather be, Mike Johnson or Mitch McConnell? And, you know, now obviously... It's now it's definitely McConnell. Your answer is definitely McConnell. Now <laughs> well, that I mean, I, I, said, I said Mitch McConnell then, and I suppose it, it, the, the caveat was, like, if if you're talking about, like, the future, obviously McConnell is in the in the winter of his political career, and we know, we know d- definitely now he, he is. But in terms of actually having a legacy... And being being an influence as opposed to being influenced, being at the whims and mercies of your party, I think McConnell does come out or Johnson. So he he'll be he'll be missed. But it is a sign sign that that times times have changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's you make a good case for for your your answer. I also think I asked when uh, McConnell had these these two episodes, and people around him say they're, they're only two episodes he's had, and they did, this happened to be in, in public. But I believe I asked, you know, will, will he still be the, the leader at the end of the year? And I'm pretty sure we all unanimously <laughs> said, uh, said he wouldn't. So, Charlie, uh, uh, discuss criticisms of McConnell or how you think of, of this aspect of his career. Obviously, he's been very uh, committed to, to judges. But the criticism from, from the left is he's a cynic. You know, he's just a, a cynic all, all about power. And that relates to the criticism of him from the right as well as just an operator, not a real conservative. And there, there's there's something to that because, you know, he was a pure leader in many respects that he, he was going to represent, you know, all aspects of the, of the caucus and be in touch with the left of the caucus and the right of the caucus, make sure that he was serving the needs of, of all of them and putting uh, his, his own um, personal priorities aside, at least to some extent, uh, at least compared to early in his career, when he was absolute lonely and prescient crusader against campaign finance reform, that I think has to be, you know, m- mentioned um, as as a key part of his his positive legacy. And then and then the the last year or so, when he's really taken on the um, isolationist or so-called isolationist, depending on how you look at it, in the party, and been totally committed to Ukraine funding in a way that's kind of hampered his his leadership ability. And I, I sort of took as a sign that actually, you know, that this is this is near the end that that he's uh, um, that, that he's being so forceful about this, but obviously something that he uh, uh, fe- feels and believes very deeply. So what would be an example of his only caring about power? Well, you know, the the um, he, he would he would cut deals that just could get through. Uh, he would um, uh, do anything to protect his members from uh, politically difficult votes. I don't, I don't buy this uh, criticism myself, but that's, uh, um, that's you know, the, the left would say it wasn't, you know, the, the Scalia thing, keeping the Scalia seat open, just pure power play in every respect. You know, yeah. he just had the ability to do it. Uh, so he could do it, and he was going to do it, and he had an eye to how it would affect the election, as Maddie pointed out, and he just wanted the seat. And uh, don't tell me about his norms and his how much he cared about the institution, because that was just a pure 
uh, power play. And I remember Peggy Noonan, you know, who's not anti uh, McConnell or a crazy person at the time, saying this, this we're going to regret this. It's going to uh, have a deranging effect on our politics, and it did to, to some extent. Um, but uh, you know, I think it was was the right thing to do. But that that's the main thing the left points to, right? Yes, I don't buy that argument. I certainly think he cared about power, which he has to as a Senate majority leader. And the Senate is an institution in which we vest power. Senators have more power in our system as written than anyone else, in fact. But he clearly didn't only care about power. Because if he had, he would have been on board with abolishing the filibuster when Donald Trump was encouraging Republicans to do so. Mm-hmm. Back in 2017, yes, great Republicans had unified control of Washington, but because they didn't have 60 votes in the Senate, they couldn't get what Donald Trump and others wanted done. Trump put a great deal of pressure on McConnell, and McConnell responded by putting together a bipartisan coalition of senators, over 70 in total, vowing to preserve an institution that at that point was hurting the right. So... I think we can't use the word only. I also, given that you mentioned this critique from the left, do not buy the idea that it was a particular power play for the Senate to exercise the constitutional role that it has been given in determining who sits on the Supreme Court. That argument is always attended by the line, took a seat away from Barack Obama. Barack Obama's the president. He can nominate whomever he liked, and he did. And the Senate can say yes or no, and it did. I consider it an institutionalist move, both because it exercised power that the Senate had and because it was exercised in the interest of preserving the Constitution. And I don't believe this is a normal political question. Some people on the left think this. Some people on the right think that. That's true of taxes. That's not true of the U.S. Constitution where the originalists are correct. The damage that would have been done to America had that court flipped in the other direction would have been monumental. And I think McConnell believes that deep down into his soul. You only have to look at his behavior in his defense of the First Amendment in particular to see that. He is not agnostic or power-hungry on the question of constitutional power. So I don't think he only cared about power. Of course, he does care about power to a large extent, because that's what we're talking about here is political power. I think that the vast majority of the criticisms that have been leveled at Mitch McConnell from the right are really criticisms of the American electorate for not returning enough Republicans to push through sweeping change. I know here and there he made a mistake. There are bills that he's backed that I've criticized. There are moments of hypocrisy that I've criticized. But usually... The charge is that McConnell didn't somehow convince other people within the system to give up their incentives and interests. We saw this in 2013 with the shutdown, where Ted Cruz's argument boiled down to Mitch McConnell doesn't care enough to convince Barack Obama to repeal Obamacare, his signature achievement, (laughs) while the Democrats controlled the Senate and the White House. And we're still seeing this. This is what has bedeviled House Republican leaders now for years and may bedevil the next Senate leader as well. Most of Mitch McConnell's decisions have been in context. When he's had 53 or 54 seats, he has behaved differently than when he had 49. 
But that he had 49 was not his fault. And again, insofar as he cared about power, it seems to have been to try to get over the 50 mark so that the Senate could exercise its role to the maximum. I think he has been a remarkably good Senate majority leader. I think it will be obvious quite quickly that whoever comes next, and I don't say this out of any animosity to the potential alternatives, but whoever comes next is going to be a downgrade and is also going to struggle with the same political realities that McConnell did, but probably with less talent to confront them. Yeah, so the criticisms of McConnell are, uh, some of them at least, are closely related to the criticisms of Kevin McCarthy, which is just, uh, you don't want this enough, so you're not giving it to us when it's really a product of uh, the nature of the institution and a narrow majority. McConnell never had a a big majority, and I think that the test, and and you hit on this, Charlie, is, you know, the the people in these roles, they have to be operators at a certain level, but the the question at the end of the day is, is there a true north? And I think McConnell um, did have a, a true north he was always working towards, you know, and he had to zig and zag and retreat at times and advance at, at others. And that's just, that's just politics and, and statesmanship. So MBD, I've asked this before, I'll ask it again. We, we have a political culture that is now incapable of creating Mitch McConnell's yes or no. No, our culture can still produce um, McConnell's politically. Uh, it's rare that they're produced at all, right? So uh, the fact that his successor may not be uh, as adept at the institution as he was is no is no impeachment there. I mean, he, like I said, he was a rare figure and, and a historic one. Um, but I think there are we are seeing in in the uh, Senate. I, I see people. Um, Mullen from Oklahoma. I see uh, um, the young senator from Alaska. I see talent in the Senate. Uh, I think J.D. Vance, uh, even if you disagree with his politics, I think he's running a very serious office um, that's committed to actually legislating. Uh, so I, I think our culture is capable of producing leaders still, um, at least as capable as, as it ever was. Maddie. Uh no, I, I actually think it's just, I mean, it's more likely that you're going to find a Mitch McConnell type in the Senate than the House for, for obvious reasons. But I just I just don't see how somebody like that thrives in the current climate. I think that Trump has such a hold on the party and at least for the foreseeable future, I just don't see how that changes. Charlie? Well, the risk of being pedantic, what both Michael and Maddie seem to be suggesting is is not that there's a lack of supply, but that there's a lack of demand. I can absolutely see the supply of a Mitch McConnell. I just don't think at the moment the party's going to want it, either because it's too in hoc to Trump or because it really has convinced itself that all Republicans need to do is sit around, close their eyes, and concentrate hard enough, and then they'll usher in this perfect period of conservative rule. But I'm sure there are people in the Republican firmament who could fulfill the role. I don't think that it is impossible to do what Mitch McConnell did with a great deal of study. As you mentioned, Rich, he didn't achieve what he achieved because he was a beautiful man to look at or unfathomably charismatic. He worked harder than everyone else. 
and he mastered his institution. And if the incentives lined up, others could do that as well. Yeah, McConnell's also one of these rare guys in, in politics. You, you you can meet with him and say, "What are you reading?" You know, and he's actually reading some really interesting book and very very often a work of of history. I, I would say I asked the question: Is a political culture incapable? Incapable is strong, but I think it's it's gotten it's clearly gotten harder. So with that, let's pause and hear from our first sponsor. This episode, our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their Breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives, from flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe. Some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that form their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of whom are old friends and colleagues of National Review, of course, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit CEI.org slash How the World Works. That's CEI.org slash How the World Works. Please check it out. So, Maddie, we had this bombshell decision by the Supreme Court to take up this immunity uh, appeal from Donald Trump. We've discussed it. He maintains that former president should be immune from criminal prosecution. He has gotten shut out at the, uh, the lower level. The circuit court in, in DC, DC said, no, uh, you're wrong about this. And the, the left has gone completely bonkers over this uh, decision of the Supreme Court to take up this, this matter they've never directly addressed. And they're doing it on an expedited basis. Trump wanted it to work, so they, they really wouldn't be able to get to it till next year. I don't really think there would have been anything wrong with that. I don't know why the, the court has to accommodate Jack Smith's rush to, to do this before the election. But it, it did, within reason, accommodate Jack Smith. Yeah, so one of the things that anti-Trump uh, people, and especially people on the left, have been holding on to is this hope that Trump will be stopped by any one of his uh, legal issues in time for the election. And that, especially with the Supreme Court taking up this case and the timeline of that, which you just laid out, looks less and less likely. Now, there, it's one thing to say um, to say that. I think it was Megyn Kelly who, who's, who said uh, that it looks like Trump's basically pulled the inside straight he needed to because the Supreme Court's taking up the immunity case and the timeline's going to push it uh, so it won't happen, the trial won't happen before the election, the debacle with Fannie Willis in Georgia, the egregiously partisan nature of the New York cases mean that voters might not be likely to pay much attention to them anyway, and the Florida and D.C. cases are not happening before November. That all helps Trump politically, but that's a one of the criticisms that's uh, been made is actually against the integrity of the court. So you had Nancy Pelosi saying that it's the Supreme Court that's on trial here by t taking up that case. And that's obviously ridiculous. I think we noted in our editorial that if this were simply a, a MAGA court acting at Trump's whims, then they, they would have they would have taken up the initial request to cut out the DC circuit and just granted him instant immunity. And it, I, I don't think we have any reason to think that's likely to happen. Um, the you know the Constitution's text isn't clear that it, it provides for presidential immunity. Um, but but like we say, politically, this kind of is a win for Trump insofar as he could have gotten a win from this because um, 
even if the even if the court uh, does not find in his favour, it's it's going to push it back, and that that does help Trump in the run up to the election. So, hence the the hysteria. So, Charlie, one argument that progressives make is that th- this is just it's. It's absolutely clear. There's no case for what Trump is arguing. So why does the Supreme Court have to take this up? But Jack Goldsmith, former Bush official, Harvard guy, I, I believe, writes for the uh, left of center website Lawfare a lot. A, a week or so ago, I had a piece there saying the Supreme Court should take this up because the, the D.C. Circuit is correct on the uh, the basic decision that, no, this kind of sweeping immunity doesn't exist, but it, it messed up its its reasoning. So it'd be a very bad thing if the court let that uh, decision stand. And uh, this has, I, I, I profess not, I've read this, this piece once, I'm going to have to read it multiple times and talk to Andy about it to kind of understand it, but it has something to do with, with the implications for the plain statement rule. Uh, and Goldsmith makes the case that this potentially could impinge on legitimate authorities of the the president. So it's it's just it's uh, he, he called you know a week or so ago for the, the Supreme Court to to actually take this up for this reason. I think our listeners know what I think of Donald Trump, and will therefore place what I'm about to say in the correct context. I think that progressives have made it abundantly obvious in the last two days that the only thing they care about here is making sure there's a trial that can hurt Donald Trump politically. I don't think this is a good faith objection. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. The first one is that it seems patently obvious to me that you do not want to have a situation where one of the two major party nominees for president of the United States appeals a decision to the Supreme Court and is declined. The Supreme Court says, well, we won't look at it. It should look at it even if it endorses every single word of the existing decision. Suppose for a moment Jack Goldsmith is incorrect, and I think he's right. But suppose he's incorrect, and that that decision is perfect. That if God came down himself and wrote a decision, it would look exactly like that. The Supreme Court should still evaluate it and set it as the highest precedent possible. One of the reasons for that is you don't want to split. Now, I don't think this would necessarily happen this time, but it seems likely to me, given where our politics is at the moment, that you could have another case, maybe with different facts, maybe in a different area, and that we would not know what the rule was, and there'd be no relevant Supreme Court precedent. It's good to have the Supreme Court weigh in on this so that there is no higher authority that the question can be appealed to. Even if just to get rid of the talking point, well, of course, the Supreme Court never looked at it and there were problems with that decision and now they're playing out in ways that weren't anticipated. No. It's also just not the case that the Supreme Court has dragged its feet on this. And if it has dragged its feet, then so has Jack Smith. Jack Smith hasn't expedited every part of this process. There have been delays in his prosecution as well. I don't think these are real objections. In fact, I went on to check my instincts here, and I looked at the summary of this case on SCOTUS blog, which is a pretty good source, has a good record of summing up the controversies in any Supreme Court case fairly. And if you read through the history of this, it does not 
scan at all with what figures such as Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow are claiming. And I think that's because they're not really claiming anything legally. They're claiming this politically. They believe that it is self-evident that Donald Trump should be disqualified or prosecuted or at least embarrassed in public. And they are reasoning backwards from that point. But there's no need for the legal profession to do this, given the stakes, given the questions at hand. You do want the Supreme Court to set a precedent here to tidy up any of the problems that figures such as Jack, as Jack Smith have have identified and to make it official. So w- one of the arguments they make is that th- this is this is absolutely crucial to the public understanding of what happened on January 6th and Trump's role to have have this trial. When as as far as I recall, there's nothing new in the indictment whatsoever. <laughs> you know, we we knew a lot about this the day of January 6th because it played out mostly in, in public. You didn't know exactly what Trump was doing, but you could intuit what he was what he was doing. And then we had the January sixth hearings, public, you know, huge huge report. So, so the idea you need you need the trial for public understanding is is uh, uh, completely ridiculous. They want the the trial to embarrass him, and they want to convict him, and they're they're trying to substitute for the lack of uh, a Senate conviction in the impeachment trial and a lack of a case which would be clean, you know, which you wouldn't have these novel theories of law, uh, uh, an insurrection indictment against Trump, an ins- insurrection charge. But, you you know, since he's not guilty of in- insurrection, it wasn't an insurrection. You can't do that either. So you get this really convoluted case. And, and MBD, I think just Jack Smith, it's it's the consequences of this are, are going to be terrible because if the, the the trial doesn't come off, this is the rigged argument the left will use. They'll have other ones if Trump wins. This the co- Supreme Court helped rig it for him because they delayed it and and then it didn't happen, and so this illegitimate guy got to run, you know, without well, without paying the price for this, and that's why he's illegitimate, and that's why we should have a revolution and not accept his election. Whereas if he, if the trial comes off, he's actually convicted. This and Trump loses. This will be the rigged argument on the other side, on the right. Right. Well, this is, I mean, we've been warning about this and I've been warning about this for, you know, several months now that we were colliding towards uh, an electoral process that was just not going to be accepted on on like a fundamental level um, that everyone feels like they're being cheated in some, some way. I mean, you're, you're fundamentally right that we we're not learning anything new what we're doing is we're testing the system, right? Like what, that's what Jack Smith, that's what his trial is about is it's not, we're not learning anything new about January 6th. We're testing to see whether a court can, you know, book him and, and put him in, in, in irons and send him away forever. Um, and take the, take the, uh, and then whether that itself takes him off the ballot or or takes him out of contention for the presidency, I mean, it, it's a it's a stress test, and it has the risks of stress tests, which are political stress tests like this, which are are considerable because they're about fundamentally about legitimacy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I I think I I mean I'm pretty confident the court is going to come down with a very um with a maybe even a unanimous ruling here or an eight to one um where trump is not given some kind of special immunity because no such thing exists in the constitution 
and Jack Smith's going to be left with his own mess and and what he makes of it. Um, but so I, you're I, double. If I remember correctly, you're double eight one. So you think the the Colorado case will be an eight one, and and this will be an eight one. Yeah. So kind of a, so so a, a st- statement of consensus from the court on these two aspects of contention over the the election. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and um, I think the court doesn't want. I mean, court would rather be as far away from this as possible um, institutionally, um, and for good reason. But it Jack's, it'll be Jack Smith's mess on his own. But you know the the left's imagination about Trump's illegitimacy will not, you know, be confined to just this. I mean, it will. I mean, I mean, get ready in the next couple of weeks for more stuff about Putin. You know, sending brainwaves or whatever into like country radio music or you know whatever whatever their theory is. Uh, it's that sort of thing is coming down the pike. All right, so Maddie, let's let's put it all on the line. Trump will be tried on the January sixth case before the election. Yes or no? No. Charlie. No. MBD. No. Yeah, put me down with MBD on that that uh, uh, hesitant. Hesitant, no, because because I think that you know they're highly committed to doing it. They they may do it even if it's delayed, such that that it's just totally preposterous and completely wrong in terms of the calendar, which I think is already we passed that juncture a, a while ago, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm a hesitant, no, but still a no. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor. It is deep in the ethos of National Review that work is a bedrock and a flourishing society, and that work is a pivotal component in the God-given dignity of every person. Economist and financial manager David Bonson, our friend and colleague, has taken this message to its full potential with his brand new book, Full-Time, Work and the Meaning of Life, whether it be in public policy, in the culture, or even in the church. Too often, work is seen as a necessary evil and not the universal blessing that it is. David argues in his brand new book, for the economic, theological, and ontological significance of work, suggesting that it is a core to our identity and that the fastest way to a failed state will be to continue in the low regard for work that ignores our God-given capacity for productivity. David does not shy away from defending work as a therapeutic, cathartic vehicle for dealing with challenging circumstances in life, and ultimately argues that the other things we value in a well-ordered life, marriage, children, community worship, are all enhanced when we properly prioritize and centralize work. It is not a book on work that you've ever read before. Get David Monson's full-time work in the meaning of life today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. That's full-time work in the meaning of life. And check out more at fulltimebook.com. That's fulltimebook.com. It's a wonderful book with a very compelling and important argument, so I highly recommend it. What I don't recommend, Charlie, is Gemini, which is the new Google AI app, what um, technology, whatever you – mechanism, whatever you call it. And people have been poking around on this since this release, I don't know what, uh, a week ago, and there's been a lot of focus on – it's image making, which is extremely woke. I mean, to a, um, a, sati- a parodic extent, you, you'll ask for Nazis, and it'll give you, you know, one one Nazi that might look like a or a 1943 German soldier, and it'll give you one that looks like a 1943 German soldier. Then it'll give you an Asian American woman, you know, and and uh, and a hipster and <laughs> whatever. And there was uh, someone I was reading Nate Silver's take on this. I don't know whether he, I think he generated this himself. He asked for NHL hockey players 
And he, he got, you know, like four out of the five looked like NHL hockey players. But the, the fifth was an, an Asian American woman who was out of shape and, and was wearing a surgical mask, you know, around her neck. It wasn't even properly uh, affixed to, to her face. But clearly there was uh, um, prompts in here that um, mandated the, the diversification of images, whether it was uh, appropriate or not. Are you telling me that nurses can't be hockey players? Because that is extremely <laughs> bigoted. This is a bad piece of software. And what interests me about it the most is that the reaction to it has been broadly negative in a way that simply wasn't true of Google's search engine, which this is ultimately supposed to replace or complement at least. It's not just that it has been infected with all of the ideological predilections and personal preferences of the people who commissioned and programmed it. It's that it's not as good as the alternatives. I've been using large language models for a while out of pure interest. And this one pales in comparison to, say, chat GPT, which is not what you want if you're Google. It, so, Charlie, when you say using, actually, like, like using in your work life or just playing around with? The, well, a combination of the two, mostly playing around with, but I do use ChatGPT to help me code sometimes because it cuts down on some of the grunt work. If you look at Google search, you will notice that some of the supposedly intelligent functions of it are dumb. For example, it will take certain questions literally. One example I saw somebody highlight recently was they asked it which role an actress played in a movie. But the response that they got was she played coy when asked about her method. Now, that's the sort of linguistic foible that AI is supposed to get over. It doesn't seem to have. I don't see Gemini as being that much more intelligent than Google Search, at least not relative to the alternatives. But then there's the fact that it is quite clearly hampered by the hang-ups of the progressive class as a whole. I suspect what has happened here is that it has been fed a steady diet of around 2015-era Salon, that seems to be its political center of gravity. It has clearly been trained on irritating progressive journalism. And then that irritating progressive worldview has itself been surrounded by irritating progressive guardrails. The word that it uses more than anything else is harm. Harm, harmful. It becomes indignant if you ask it anything about Barack Obama. It applies absurd double standards to politicians. If you ask it, for example, should Barack Obama be thrown in jail by the government, it gives you a little speech about how that would strike at the very heart of the American experiment and our values of due process and pluralism and so forth. If you ask it whether Ronald Reagan should be thrown into jail, it says there's a case to be made given his economic policy. Now, where do you get that? That's not someone at Google who is 
inserting explicitly that idea. That's how the New York Times editorial page talks. That's what's happened here. And why does it matter, you might wonder. I'll tell you why it matters. It matters partly because Google's market share is such that it will be able to bundle this product and make it the default AI app for everyone, possibly at no cost. Google already has insinuated its way, legitimately, into pretty much every school, government, corporation in the country. But it matters because, unlike Google Search, AI chat bots do not have alternatives available to you on the same page. If you type in, was Ronald Reagan a good president? Sure, Google can tweak the results a little bit. Maybe it can make sure that the featured preview is critical or the first three answers are slanted left. But at some point in the first 10 or 20 results, you're going to get a link to National Review or the Heritage Foundation or some historian who likes Ronald Reagan. That's not true in a large language model. One of the potential advantages of this is that it cuts out all of the detritus. If you can ask it, what is the capital of France, and have it say Paris, then you don't need to go through multiple steps, try and work out if the source is legitimate, and so on and so forth. But the problem lies if the AI source is not reliable. And clearly, at some point, a lot of the interrogative requests that you make of Google search, a lot of people ask it questions, are going to be transferred automatically over to AI. And if that AI is essentially a second-year college student at Sarah Lawrence, it's going to be very difficult to get any sense out of it because those people believe that any answer that is not carefully managed is causing irrevocable harm and is fascist-adjacent. And that's what you get. Don't take my word for it. That's what you get out of Google Gemini. This has been a huge embarrassment to Google because people have noticed. They've noticed that bias in a way they might not in other contexts. And I was just going to finish by saying, I think that gives us some profound implications as to what Google's going to look like going forward because they haven't really done anything good or interesting or innovative for 15 years. The first thing they've done that people seem to be curious about has led to a absolute torrent of criticism and an apology from the CEO. So, Maddie, what do you think of the, the argument that this would be a great example? Friends on the, the new right or populist right would, would point to, you know, you, you kind of old conventional conservatives, you're, you're very uh, concerned about government and, and maybe we should be concerned about government power and the way it uh, distorts our lives or limits our freedom. But here you have a company, a private company with this enormous hold on how on information or how people access information that is beholden to this ideology and jamming it down its, uh, our throats. So we don't need to worry uh, so much about government anymore. We need to worry about corporate power. Um, well, they're not mutually exclusive for, for starters, but se- secondly, I think that this is actually something that um, – Google could have figured this out in a trial. What's just strange about this is it ever got to the public. I mean, these are obvious problems with the model. These are obvious uh, things that would cause embarrassment. It's almost as if it hadn't been properly tested. But then when it was tested, when it did come to public light, I think they've 
they've had to respond, you know. So in a way, it's it's worked. Um, the the public pressure has worked. Obviously, there's still lots of reasons to be concerned about it. I mean, I I think we have to sort of separate in a way the the question of of accuracy and, and reliability with the the various moral biases because the the accuracy issues alone were just enough to condemn it. I mean, you know, it's what it's one thing if you have like a creative Hollywood production and you have a black Henry VIII or you know, a, a woman playing Caesar or something like that. You know, we, we can all suspend our disbelief when we're watching a movie. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, I, I do think there's double standards in Hollywood with these things, you know, that uh, black actors can play white characters, but not um, the other way around. But it doesn't it doesn't really matter so much because it's not an accuracy thing. Whereas if you're you're looking something up and expecting to have reliable information and it fails in that fundamental basic task, I mean, forget the the question of, the biases that alone is just inadequate. The the biases, I think this is just something that is really difficult with the more sophisticated and the more intelligent AI gets. Is you know, I mean, really the, the answer to some of these questions, like is Elon Musk worse than Adolf Hitler, or you know, is pedophilia wrong? Um, to which it was answering, there's you know, there's no right or wrong answer, which is absurd. A, a better answer would be if it could just say, ask a human being. If it, if it had, if it had in its worked into its model enough, I, I I don't really know enough about how these things work. Charlie maybe could give more insight to that. But if it had in its model a way of just the guardrails, where as soon as you uh, get into moral judgments, um, you know, kind of the way that like Google search works, um, it doesn't necessarily give you. It, it will lead you to other sources, but it doesn't necessarily give its own opinion or its own analysis on these things. Um, so it, it is a, a, a continued concern because there is this competition for the prevailing moral judgments and, and whether AI is going to play a major or outsized role in this. I think that is a legitimate concern, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say therefore we have to abandon our concern about government and, and focus on, on corporations. So MB, do you feel free to react to anything you've, you've heard, but l- let me ask you, and this is something you've, you've written about it as well. I just have had the sense the last couple of years, when I have to find something on Google, I kind of groan. I was like, I, I've lost my ability for search. I, I used to be good at it. Now, for some reason, I can't do it. It's just like, it's, it seems to have gotten really hard. And I, I guess the answer is that it's not, it's not me, it's Google. Yeah, it's not you. Actually, Google search has been declining in usability, I would argue, since the first decade of the, of the century. I mean, it's been declining since about 2009. Um, it, it, and that's what's, I think, so shocking about Google Gemini, right, is that Google search, people understood what Google search was, right? It's this, um, what Google was doing was it was basically browsing the entire internet for you with its spiders and, you know, whatever technical jargon it had, and then indexing it and then allowing you with your search terms to find anything on it using its kind of brute force computation. And that felt when it, when it was working that way in the heyday of Google search, that felt like a genuine, um, uh, appendage to your brain's working, right? Like when you're doing research and if you could remember a memorable word that Janet Reno said five years ago, 
in a quote, you could find the story in the New York Times just by Google searching it, right? Like you'd be able to put those terms in or even synonymous ones and usually come up with it. And then Google kept, quote unquote, improving the product uh, with its advert first by loading it up with its own advertising incentives, uh, which were financially great for Google, but not great for search results. Then, you know, then, you know, it, it put in a really strong recency bias as if the thing that you were searching for on the internet must have been something that you came across 10 minutes ago or three months ago at the earliest. Um, it's just gotten worse and worse. And then Google Gemini is like hitting bottom, which is like, okay, now I'm not even going to give you um, a diverse set of results. I'm going to give you one answer and I might tell you you're a bad person for even asking the question. And like, it, it, it's, it's also bad because it's so inaccurate, right? Like I just asked it while we were on, on here. Um, who are some contemporary writers who reflect a populist conservative sensibility? And it starts giving me a list under fiction. It lists JD Vance, Hillbilly Elgy and Roger, the Benedict option. Well, okay. Maybe you got the authors right, but not the uh, category fiction. That's what I'm saying when I say that it is not a great improvement over search because it's just scraping things from the internet without evaluating context. Yeah. And then, but then it goes underneath uh, nonfiction, Tucker Carlson, and it has a little warning. Be aware, his work is often considered polemical. And then David Brooks, <laughs> the road character. It's like, okay, this, this did not understand the question fundamentally. Um, and then was nervous about giving the answer. Uh, and obviously so. Um, and and listen, our, I, our AI bots are scared of uh, the politically correct mob. That's that's what we've come to. I, well, I think, I, I, I think really that... Google itself, like you asked, uh, you asked Maddie about the private and public distinction, and and really, I think after 2016, governments put a ton of pressure on Silicon Valley to start like politically sanitizing the products, or else face more regulation. Um, so, conclude from that what you will about um, whether it's governments overweening power or whether it's sort of like a class conspiracy that, that uh, stretches across public and private institutions. But that's really the source of, of this nonsense. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a sad thing. Like, I mean, I mean, I used to have a lot of faith in digital technology precisely because it seemed at first to be free of, um, you know, these, these institutional barriers and it, it gave you a kind of personal freedom to navigate information. But now we're getting something that's like even worse than what it's replaced, right? Like, I, I'm sorry, but the old, like the old Encyclopedia Britannica's had their biases, but they were like entertaining and varied. Mm -hmm. This, this has like a bias that is just stultifying and stupid. Um, yeah, I remember Wilfred Riley, I think one of the first things he wrote for us, he's like, get, get, get a copy of the, the encyclopedia, you know, circa 1983 or something and just, just keep it, <laughs> just have it on hand. Yeah. Um, as the yeah, ahead, resident 
free market guy who's routinely skeptical of government regulation. I do think we need to worry about it here, but I think it's a separate issue. We are seeing a two-pronged attempt by institutional progressivism to control the means of AI, to coin a phrase. On the one hand, you have one of the largest companies in the world, Google, explicitly programming its system to deem anything that the average person who works at Google thinks is harmful, as outre. And on the other, you have a movement in Washington, D.C. that keeps issuing warnings about AI that are, in my estimation, nothing more and nothing less than a cynical power grab and an attempt to make sure that AI is used to the benefit of one political faction in this country. So you've got both. I'm not sure you can fix Google's problems with government, but we certainly need to fix government's problems with government. And conservatives ought to resist any attempt from Washington, D.C. to put its thumb on the scales in the way that it's being asked to do. Charles, Charles, is there any way we we could force or bully or shame Google into just releasing the search algorithm as it existed in 2007 as uh, some kind of freeware that we could... (laughs) I mean, look, I'm critical of Google too, Michael. I do think one of the problems that Google has that it hasn't made itself relative to 2007 is the internet is bigger. And there are a lot of professionals out there who have worked out how to hack, and I use that term more in the life hack sense than in the movie about security sense, hack the algorithm. The reason that you cannot find a recipe for spaghetti carbonara without having to troll through a seven-paragraph story about someone's grandfather being born in Sicily is that Google has certain expectations, the advertising revenue is part of this, and people, quite well-paid people, have worked out how to meet them. And this has made life worse for the average Google user. Now, Google could address that and probably should address it, but then another challenge will come up. And that's why I'm so irritated by this, because it seems to me that the problems with Google Search that you've identified are going to be, in the long run, intractable problems with search as a product that simply didn't exist in 1998 when the alternatives were AltaVista and and Ask Jeeves. AI is a fantastic way of getting around most of those, and Google has decided to put out this piece of (laughs) garbage, which is very frustrating. Maddie, exit to you first. You are more encouraged and hopeful about AI or alarmed by AI. Well, so one thing we haven't really touched on, which I'll just quickly say, is that uh, Google search and AI is like a hypochondriac's like worst nightmare because every time you type in any symptoms you're having of anything, it, it comes up with the most sinister, terrible things. And uh, for that reason, I think, uh, no, in, in seriousness, I, I do think that uh, it is alarming and it's alarming because they're failing to address this this question of moral biases. I do wonder sometimes if, if sort of conservatives focus like, too much on that and think, thinking it's a conspiracy. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just people have their biases and when they're making these, they, they come out and then it, it takes like public bash, backlash for them to actually confront the problem. Um, but it isn't a problem that's going away. MBD, encouraged and hopeful or alarmed by AI? 
alarmed. Um, al- alarmed in the sense that there is this this race for. Um, there's this race on to create like a, a dominant AI and then to program its values for the future and for all time as if like one worldview will be triumphant um, through one company or, or one civilization or, or, you know, something like that. Like we're trying to upload our values into the machines and make ourselves somehow redundant um, because the machines will then enforce the values in an inhuman way that we never would. Um, You know, whereas like I, but I'm, I'm hopeful in the sense that I think people under intuit that danger. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm I'm hoping that it's going to open up an opportunity in the future for, for, kind of what my my friend the James Poulos who's who's writing we've talked about before it can be a little hard to grasp. <laughs> Are you sure you you understand what he's saying? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, but he but he talks about this idea of like a Second Amendment for computing, and and that we as Americans um, have to assert our right to assert our values in the uh, computational sphere and um, in the internet itself and that means not letting uh just the same way we don't let the government have all the guns we don't let one institution have all of the ai uh we can bring our own values to this project uh so Charlie, we have uh we have two alarmed on the bo- two alarms on the board no i'm alarmed too and i must say uh, i agree with michael in in large part and i do Contra Maddie, think a lot of this is deliberate. Often, we do as conservatives read too much into biases. But the old computing term is garbage in, garbage out. Yep. And this this project did not spring up out of the womb in this form. It was designed like this. It was fed this and i do find that alarming so i am not going to make it unanimous i'm more hopeful about uh ai gemini aside i think it's going to lead to just enormous advances and and productivity and lead to all sorts of innovations there'll be downsides always are to technological and economic advances but i am more hopeful then alarmed with that. Let me do a quick plug for Enter Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to have a much uh, smoother experience at NR with without all the distracting ads and your way, if you want to, you don't have to, to comment on articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures Charlie, MBD, and I, and about two hours from, from right now, are doing an NR Plus call, which we try to do about once a month, 100 people or, or so, just totally open forum, whatever people want to ask, whatever people want to comment. We don't insist on questions. We just have an open conversation with NR Plus readers, so that's another benefit. If you're interested in that, uh, it's a great deal all around, won't cost you very much, and is a very important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider becoming one today, tomorrow or the day 
after. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you got a big boys weekend coming up soon here. Yeah, my uh, my my wife and daughter are away at a, a, a dance convention, so it's just me and the two a boys. A dance convention. Yeah, wow. Yeah, um, yeah, my daughter will be dancing all weekend. Uh, awesome. On East Coast City doing um, some classes with, with some pro choreographers and then um, some performance from her her school. Um, wow. But in the meantime, at home, um, the boys will just be wastrels, I think. We're going to be playing Super, <laughs> Super Smash Brothers later today with my uh, five and seven-year-old and myself and um, probably eat some unhealthy food um, Good. and Good. just get the runaround. Throw um, dirty socks on the floor. The whole well, thing. I have to desperately try to pick them up, you know, when the, the girls are returning. I know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it should be should be a fun weekend, and we'll, we'll probably watch some silly movies, too. Awesome. Have fun. So, Maddie, you're at Abigail Schreier's book launch. Yeah, so she's um, – so Abigail Schreier wrote Irreversible Damage, which was um, a really excellent investigative book on transgenderism and kids, and she was among the wave of people who – pointed out the dangers of this before um, it was trendy to do so. Her latest book is Bad Therapy. It's uh, about the mental health industry and how it's harming, not healing kids. But uh, I went to her book launch in New York and it was a lot of fun uh, seeing people I hadn't seen for a while, including uh, Eli Lake of the Free Press, who's just a wonderful writer and hilarious guy. So, And I know he listens to this podcast. So if you're if you're listening, there's my shout out, Eli. <laughs> So, Charlie, you've been using Apple Music's automated playlists. Apple Music occasionally asks me if it wants, if I want it to play songs that it thinks I will like. And I historically have said no to every service that has asked me this because it never gets it right. But I must say, I'm, I'm very impressed. Not only has it worked out what I like, it is intuited that I would like songs that I haven't heard for 25 years. I usually listen to when I was 14. <laughs> And I'm astonished by this. Random songs, album tracks from records that no one has ever heard of that I happen to know. And, and it has worked this out from other songs, more mainstream, more popular songs that I have played. So for the first time ever, I've found a music assistant that does broadly what mm -hmm. I want. So this reminds me, I, I wrote about AI couple months ago and i read this piece by a, i think it was a university of washington computer scientist and it was the question you know is ai gonna you know achieve its own consciousness and you know become a threat to humanity and all that sort of thing it's like no you know what it ultimately used for is to create these kind of doppelgangers for ourselves that know ourselves kind of better uh, almost better than we do and that we can use to, to lean on for you know what music we like if we're going to date online or you know date every profile in the world and come up with the best five best options knowing you know uh, what 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 your in inclinations are and who you're going to be a good match for etc so that that uh, your your apple music experience just reminds me of that guy's argument so i uh, oftentimes grab and hold on to books that i kind of have aspiration to read but uh, don't read for a very long time and i had a, several of these uh, here on my my shelves and i've come in, interested in uh, uh, kind of modern European history. I've worked my way up from the medieval period the last several months. And I noticed these these books, just their dates lined up perfectly. There's one by a guy named Tim Blanning, 
the pursuit of glory, Europe, 1648 to 1815. Then there was one, the pursuit of power, that was 1815 to 1914. And then there is a book to Helen back, 1914 to 1949. It's like, oh, this is great. I have three books. This is a, you know, a century's worth of European history. And there's just this coincidence. They all line up. And then I realized, no, it's a penguin series <laughs> on European history. And this is why they all line up. And I picked up the first one by Tim Blanning, who's a very serious historian. And I just realized there's just too much social and economic history for me. Um, I, I'm interested in high politics, uh, military strategy, and war. And uh, there just was, wasn't enough. So I put this aside and went straight to the eight. 1914 to 1949, because I think even if you want to have social and political uh, economic history in there and have some, it's got to be mainly high politics, military strategy, and war. <laughs> and so far, it hasn't disappointed. And it's by this historian, Ian Kershaw, who wrote this amazing two-volume history of Hitler as well. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is just generalized endorsement of um, Andy McCarthy, uh, whose work the last couple of weeks uh, has been utterly indispensable for me in following all of Trump's legal travails and all of the gambits being pursued, all of the Hunter Biden stuff that is still coming out. Uh, I literally don't know what I would do without Andy McCarthy's work or what Nashville Review would do without it. He's um, beyond essential. Here, here. And it's, it's become, uh, I was talking to him about this on his podcast, the McCarthy Report yesterday. He's become a financial expert. You know, you know all, all the ins and outs of Trump's uh, business empire and, uh, you know, how liquid it is and whether he'll be able to pony up this, this uh, money he needs to appeal or at least uh, prevent the, the government from beginning to, to try to seize his, yeah. his assets. And so far, the indications are, no, are, are as Andy has said, no, he, he can't, he can't, uh, he's not liquid enough. Maddie, what's your pick? My pick is a piece from the recent issue of the magazine. It's by Christine Rosen. Uh, it's called Democratic Women Trade Hope for Fear in 2024. It's just asking whether this is going to be a long-term strategy for, for Democrats playing up the um, abortion politics, but beyond that, just a kind of message of despair. It's a really great piece to recommend it. Charlie. I'm going to take your piece, the left's bonkers attack on the Supreme Court. I'm glad you wrote this. I watched that Chris Hayes segment that you embed in this piece with my mouth open and my jaw on the floor. It's everything that you would expect from Alex Jones, right down to the wild look. In his eyes, the overconfidence is provided by Rachel Maddow, as usual. I just don't know how people who watch MSNBC, and frankly, a lot of Fox as well, function in the world. I don't know how they proceed. I don't know what they believe is true as their baseline. I don't know what color the sky is in their world. It is so crazy, and it is so obviously and deliberately crazy I have no doubt Chris Hayes knows what he's doing, that it needed to be called out. And you managed to do this. I sat down yesterday and thought about doing this, but I just started screaming at my computer and I couldn't <laughs> work out how to write that down. So I'm picking that. Thanks, Charlie. So my piece is a magazine piece, Sideline China with Free Trade by two guys at AEI. Dan Blumenthal and Derek Scissors. It's a, a very interesting and subtle argument. They actually argue our our prior approach to free trade was mistaken, and we need a, a new one that would have um, 
good economic and and also really important geopolitical effects. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, recount this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to How the World Works and Full Time by David Monson. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. See you next time.